And as far as balance goes and how do you make it all work, I mean, some people call BS and say balance is like not attainable. And I think there are moments in life where it feels like it's not, but I think if you can really uh, hone yourself in on the things that are important to you at different parts of your life, it can be. That's Lindsay Hine, and this is episode 41 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week, I've got a fun guest for you. It is Lindsay Hine. Lindsay is the host of the popular Owl of Another podcast, where every week she talks with runners from all corners of the sport, from top pros to her own training partners. I recommend checking it out. Go through the archives. You'll definitely recognize at least a few of the names in there. Paula Radcliffe, Molly Huddle, Des Linden, Evan Yeager, Jim Walmsley, just to name a few. Well, Lindsay and I, we had a great conversation a couple weeks ago, and I'm excited to share it here with you today. We geeked out on podcasts, naturally, and talked about the origins of her show and how it's evolved over the past 150 plus episodes. We also got into her running story, how she was introduced to the sport back in high school and how her relationship with it has changed over the years. We talked about her difficult decision to have a double mastectomy after she found out she was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation and how that story caught the attention of Women's Running Magazine and landed her on the cover back in 2014. Uh, Lindsay's got a great story. I'm excited to share it. She's also the mom of four boys. We talked about that and how she and her husband, Glenn, make it all work. Along those lines, we got into the myth of balance and how it sways depending on what's going on in your life. We talked about running during and after pregnancy, and she passes along some of what she's learned through her own experience, and there's a ton more. This was a super fun chat. I really enjoyed catching up with Lindsay, learning more about her story, and I think you will too. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Hine. All right, Lindsay Hine, we are rolling. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're in Austin, Texas. The running event is going on. What brings you to town? Podcasters Unite in Austin. Uh, and this came together kind of at the last Like last minute. night. <laughs> um, on the fly, are you hosting a show here at the running Yeah, event? Yeah, I'm doing a show with Lily Trotters, and I'm uh, interviewing Chrissy Mayo. And I'm also kind of doing a holiday gift guide episode, so I'm kind of putting that together while I'm down here, and there's lots of vendors down here. Well, let's get into things. Yeah. You are known primarily for your podcast, the I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine, who is you. Uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the origins of your show. It's so weird to hear that, that that's what you know me for, because it's like, what was my life before this podcast? Because it's, I'm so engulfed in it right now, you know? It is my life beyond my family. Uh, the origins of the show, while well, I was looking for a podcast to fill my needs that I wanted to hear about running and family life and things like that. And I couldn't find a show that I wanted to listen to. So I decided to create it myself. What year was this? Um, this was 2016. Okay. And had you had any prior experience interviewing anyone or talking to other notable runners or even looking to talk to notable runners when you first came up with the idea to launch a podcast? No, I definitely had zero interviewing skills. I didn't know what I was doing in that regard. I thought I like having conversations with people. I like learning about people's lives. I love talking about running. I was already a marathoner, you know, probably for, uh, I forget my first marathon in 2008. So what is that like? That's like, yeah, 10 years ago. So for eight years, I had been a marathoner. So running was a big part of my life. 
And I knew that it would be a big part of the podcast. I didn't know that it would be this big, you know, and I did try to get some bigger named runners on the show pretty early on, but I didn't realize um, that I would be making that a huge part of my show. When you kicked it off, you had just said you wanted to create the podcast that you wanted to listen to. What show did you want to listen to? I wanted to, so I listen to shows when I'm on runs, like a lot of people, or when I'm doing laundry or when I'm commuting in the car. And I wanted to listen to a show where I felt like I learned something, where I felt like I could be a part of the conversation, and where I felt happy when I left the show. You know, like when the episode was over, and this is the name, I'll have another, I want to feel like I want another episode. And so I tried to create this for other people. Um, and it's, it's been a pretty, you know, big success in my eyes from start to where I am now. I mean, I didn't realize it would take off like it did and I'm having so much fun with it. Yeah. It's massive. I know when I first was getting into the podcasting game almost exactly a year ago now, and I was in the same boat. I was looking for the podcast that I wanted to listen to. Yeah. And I am a nerdy, competitive <laughs> runner who likes to get into the weeds on things. And I couldn't find that. And I had the same mindset. It's like, oh, well, I'll create it. And as I was looking at what else was out there, I found your show. I found the Alley on the Run show, which are both great. But it's not my audience. And you've had some amazing guests. And I've learned some awesome things about your guests. But I was like, holy crap, this show is huge. I think at the time, you had had maybe 600, 700 reviews mm-hmm. on iTunes, which is a lot. Now I think it's probably well over a thousand. I rally hard for that thousand. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I shamelessly ask for those reviews, Mario. <laughs> I saw the results and we can talk about that because that's something I struggle with. I hate asking for the reviews, but I know it's it. an important part yeah. of getting your show out there and getting people mm-hmm. to recognize it. But I was blown away by how big these shows were by, and please don't take offense to this, hosts I had never heard of. Yeah. And some of the guests that you had, so I've been in the industry for a while and I've talked to a lot of these athletes and they're not NBA stars and super awesome. Sure. Mates, but they're not always easy yeah. to corner for an hour so that you can have a conversation. So kudos to you on what you've built. Um, it's, it's inspired me over the last year and I've learned a lot from you know folks such as yourself and from Allie and now we're seeing even more running podcasts starting to pop up, which I think is good for everyone. Yeah, I'm all about more shows popping up because I'm always looking for shows to listen to and I appreciate your show because I do think that you've really hit what you were trying to hit and there are other, so there can be lots of different running podcasts but you are right in the fact that you get into the nitty gritty nerdy side of running and it's good well i think it's cool that we can both have same guests on our show at different times and have two completely different conversations that are going to resonate in completely different ways and i think that's one of the most special parts of this medium like, who is this Lindsay girl interviewing Des Linden on her podcast? Who does she think she is? Well, you've had Des Linden on a couple times now. Man, I hustled hard for that second interview. I mean, I was I was emailing Josh, her agent, from like the day she from like the hour she crossed the finish line at Boston, and it took a while, but it finally happened. I think his inbox is probably pretty full. Oh, it was full. Well, Mario, I was texting him. I was calling. I mean, I was not even backing down. But did you know, I don't know if you know this happened, I lost, so I got the interview um, just a few weeks before New York, finally, 
and I forgot to record my side of the interview. I, I, I didn't have it. That is one of my worst nightmares. Okay, well, it happened, and so I thought, what am I going to do? This sucks. I tried so hard to get this interview, and I feel like a dope. I'm embarrassed, but I just went ahead and emailed Josh, and I said, look, I messed up. I'm so embarrassed. You probably already hate me because I've emailed you 972 times, but can we do this? Again? Can we do it again? And they let they did it again, and like a day later. And I think that's one of the cool things about runners is yeah. they'd be willing to give you that second opportunity. Let's go back to the beginnings of your podcast and when you first launched it. Who was your audience or your intended audience? Okay, so when I started the podcast, I had a blog called Out for a Run. And I started that blog after I started running marathons. That's when the running blogs started getting popular. Mm-hmm. And my sister is the person who encouraged me to start a blog because I ran sort of fast, not super fast, but fast enough that people might be interested to follow along with what I was doing in my training. And um, so I had a pretty small following there. I don't even know how many people read it. Not a ton, not like any of those huge bloggers. Um, so that's pretty much what my audience was. I mean, I did have the opportunity, and I think this is kind of when we met for the first time, to be on the cover of Women's Running Magazine. That was 2014, I believe. Yep, and um, that was a campaign with Saucony. The whole campaign was Find Your Strong, and my whole story was that I um, found out I was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, elected to have a prophylactic double mastectomy, and my whole story there, I wrote up my entry for this contest in like five minutes because... As soon as I read about the contest, it was like, oh, finally strong. I know exactly what this is. It's when I was training for this half Ironman, doing things I'd never done before, stepping outside of my comfort zone, facing a fear that I was fearful of for years, and finally looking it in the eye and saying, I'm going to do something about this. That was my find your strong moment. So it's one of those things where when I applied for the contest, you know, I don't know, you know, because you work for a competitor. I don't know how many people applied, but a lot. A lot. And for women's running contests like that, it was well into the thousands. And I did not have a big following. Like, I wasn't one of those people that was like, I have 30,000 Instagram followers. I can get my people to vote for me. But I just felt like the story came so organic out of my, like, when I typed it on the computer, it came out so organically and so from my heart. I was just like, I feel like I'm going to win this thing. And I feel like there's a reason behind that. And it's funny because I specifically remember my husband's aunt saying to me, what, what are you going to do with this now? Like now that you've been on the cover of women's running magazine, what are you going to do with this now? And at the time I thought, I don't know. Let me interrupt for a second. What were you doing professionally at the time? Okay. So at the time I worked for Back on My Feet, Mm -hmm. you know, Back on My Feet. Yep. Great organization. Yeah, they have a chapter in Indianapolis. Okay. So Back My Feet helps people overcoming homelessness. Um, they help them with running to build self-sufficiency in their life. So I was the communications director for them. Awesome. Yeah, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Back My Feet started in Philadelphia. Yep. And it spread from there. I know they opened up their San Francisco, I don't know, branch is the right word, but that yeah. launched last year. Um, it's an awesome organization. Yeah, so I did. I was working for them. and. That was that whole part of my life was crazy in itself because before I worked for them, I was working for a community center on the near side of Indianapolis, and I was kind of working. Um, I was doing some volunteer work for an organization called the Poor House, where they help people overcoming homelessness as well. And I remember talking to this woman saying, "I'd love to work for a nonprofit 
that does something with running and literally like a month later back in my heat launched in Indy, which is crazy because Indianapolis is a very small, big city. And we were not a city that you would think they would launch. And they were launching in Boston and Philly and all these big, bigger cities. Um, but it just so happened that they had a good corporate relationship with Marriott and White Lodging and we have a bit, they have a big presence in Indy, so they launched. So anyway, that was kind of like a dream job in itself for me at that it time. Was like, it was, and I was young. I mean, I was a young professional, like 25, I think, when okay. I got that job. Okay. And so you were doing that when you won the Women's Running Cover Contest. What did winning that contest do for your life at that point? Yeah, so at that point, I was transitioning into being a stay-at-home mom and kind of dabbling in some other things. Like I was... I was transitioning out of back of my feet and I was working for a local race doing like social media and PR press releases, stuff like that for them. And I didn't know what it was going to do. You know, and it didn't really do anything from the start, you know, like from that, I ended up doing the Saucony 26 strong project where I was mm -hmm. um, part of a team that coached runners to run their first marathon. And um, that was a cool experience. But other than that, like, I was just doing my thing, living my life. And I think it gave me just enough presence, though, that paired with my blog um, and, and just enough following and not a big following, but just enough that I had people that were dialed in and that were listening to my story. And it was resonating. It was resonating so that they would listen when I enough people listened when I started and enough people shared it. You know, I think that's. Essentially, that's how we get our show out. People liking it and then telling people about it in that ripple effect. That's how it spreads, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just really representative of the power of storytelling. Yeah. And having a story resonate, whether it's from an age group runner such as yourself who has overcome a lot of personal obstacles in her life and there's a level of relatability there, or if it's an elite athlete uh, who has followed you know, a path that maybe someone can't relate to, but is certainly inspiring because of maybe something they've come overcome earlier in their life. It just shows the power of storytelling, which I think is, again, one of the most incredible things about this podcasting medium is we can get those stories out there from some of the most recognizable people in the sport. And then some folks who aren't quite as well known, but someone may listen to them. Like they may be listening to this podcast. And we're going to dig into your story here in a little bit. And it ignites something and it may spark a change in their life or it may get them to look at something a little bit differently and it's great to see that happening on a pretty widespread level but yeah i think about it you know like you said what did being on the cover of women's running magazine do it was like that was 2014 and i didn't launch my podcast until two years later so i think that's an important thing to think about too is like things don't have to happen immediately and you might not know what it's going to be right away it's just, there's this patience aspect. And I didn't know that anything was going to come of it, but it just, this, all these pieces kind of came together and you kind of have to wait sometimes, you know? Hey, hang with me for a second while I thank our sponsor for the show, because it's an awesome one. It's my friend at Morton. 
Morton is the sports fuel used by many of the world's top marathoners, including Elliot Kipchoge, Mo Farah, Mary Gattaney, Des Linden, just to name a few. It's also what I used to break my personal best at CIM a few weeks back. I ran 227.33. I started the race with a bottle of Morton 160. I ran with it through 10K. Then I took gel 100 packets at 12, 18, and 23. I had steady energy the entire way, no stomach problems during or after the race, and that was a huge first for me. Morton's got two core products. They got a drink mix and a gel, both of which encapsulate high concentrations of carbohydrates to fuel you during your activity. They only use food-graded ingredients. There are no added flavors, colorants, or preservatives, nothing more and nothing less than what you need. Morton has a special contest for Morning Shakeout listeners where you can win heaps of free product. And here's what you have to do. Go to morton.com slash amshakeout. That is M-A-U-R-T-E-N dot com slash amshakeout and just register with your email address. Super simple. At the end of Morton's sponsorship of this podcast, they are going to draw 10 winners at random. Each winner will get a full box of 160 drink mix, a full box of 320 drink mix, and a full box of gel 100 packets. That entire package is valued at over $130, and you can enter for your chance to win at morton.com slash amshakeout. That's M-A-U-R-T-E-N dot com slash amshakeout. My thanks to Morton for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you launched the podcast, who was your first guest? Because like me, you do an interview style show. Yeah, so my first guest was, so I did, I, uh, I don't know if you did this, but everybody in the podcasting world said, says release four episodes when you launch. I definitely did not. You didn't do that. Okay. So I, I released four episodes and the first was Laura Anderson who is a friend of mine who I met through social media and she has run two sub three hour marathons. And so I think she was pretty fresh off her first one when we interviewed. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's an inspiring story in itself to me because when we started, uh, becoming friends, we were pretty much like the same speed. And so we were kind of hitting these PRs at the same time. And then I started having all these babies and Laura kept getting faster and faster. And so watching her progression has been really inspiring to me. She now has uh, a baby and since then has run another sub three. Um, but so it was her and then Christy Beth, Christy Beth Adams, who uh, owns a couple fleet feeds in Nashville. Okay. Yeah. And then I did an episode with my sisters, I have two sisters and Molly uh, Ludlow was my fourth. And what was your objective in those early episodes? To share the stories of your guests or just to have conversations that you hoped other people would enjoy and take something away from? Both of those two things and also just thinking, I don't really know what the heck I'm doing, but I hope some people are going to enjoy these conversations and I can kind of you really teach myself from, you know, from there. And every episode I learn something different. And, you know, for those people who have listened for a long time, like, thank you so much because there are episodes that have some pretty bad quality audio, you know, and I've, I've learned so much since then. Uh, but yeah, it's just been a learning process. And it's one of those things where I always kind of say done is better than perfect, you know, finish it. It's not going to probably be perfect, but sometimes I think back and think, "Eh, I could have made it a little more perfect. It's okay to be good. And if you're consistently good, it's all right that it's not great yeah. every time out, especially when you're doing something with the regularity that every, you yeah, are. Every week. And you do them every week, don't you? I'm trying to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as we were talking about before I turned the mics on, it's not easy to get ahead a lot of times, <laughs> uh, especially with an interview-based podcast because you've got to get the guests nailed down and 
make sure hopefully they don't cancel oh, yeah, and get those in, in the bag. So yeah, but I'm trying to every week. Um, when did you notice that the podcast was first starting to gain traction with listeners? I think probably about a year in, I think it really started to pick up. I mean, it's always been a slow progression and I think that that's another really important thing to think about is like, you can't compare yourself to someone who's had a show for three, four or five years, you know, when you're a year in, uh, but the consistency is key for sure. People know that when they're going to go for their long run on Saturday, a new episode has been put out on Friday, right? They know that they can count on that. Um, but yeah, as far as it picking up, I mean, and it still steadily just continues to pick up. But the other thing is like, I'm not scared to like, promote it as much as possible. It's like a shameless promotion because I'm proud of it. And I think when you're really proud of something, you don't, you don't feel embarrassed to push it out because you're proud of the work and you want to get the stories out that people are telling. When did you first have the idea to reach out to someone recognizable Mm. and have a conversation with them for your show? So I think, so Sarah Hall was my first recognizable runner and she was so sweet. She was just like, oh yeah, sure. I'll do it. And I think that was my first taste of, okay, these runners might be famous runners, but most of the time they're probably going to be really nice and fairly easy to get an interview with. Pretty down earth people. Yeah. And I mean, now that, you know, once you've built your library up, when you pitch someone, you might not know who I am, but if I say I've interviewed uh, Paula Radcliffe or Des Linden on my show, people are going to say, okay, that's, she's got, she's reputable, you yeah, know? the Rolodex looks pretty good. Yeah. Uh, going into that first interview with Sarah Hall, I mean, you didn't have a background in the running media. You didn't have these relationships beforehand. Were you nervous going into that conversation? I was nervous for that one. And, you know, the, when we did our call... Her internet was bad, and so I was all set up, all ready to go, and we had to reschedule. So you know that moment where you're, like, all fired up for something, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to knock this out. In one hour, this is going to be done, and I can breathe again. And then she, her internet just didn't work, so we rescheduled for, like, the next week or something. Like letting the air out of the balloon. Yeah, but and you know what? Every time I would get nervous, I would listen back and think, why, why was I nervous? If I just talked to these people like they are my friends... It's going to be fine. And sometimes the professional athletes are a little bit harder to get into like that because they might not understand how my conversations are. Right. Where you might ask more serious questions. I might joke around about with Emily Enfeld about her boyfriend, you know. So, um, and I try to loosen people up beforehand and say, hey, this is super casual. I don't know everything about every stat and running and things like that. And and speaking of that, I actually had, I've had a couple negative reviews saying sometimes I don't research as good as I should. And I think I've gotten a lot better about that. Um, but I don't know everything about the running industry, but I think that makes me relatable to the everyday runner, right? Sure. Yeah. And I think, I think that's who's listening to most podcasts yeah. is, is everyday runners who are trying to take something away that they can apply to their own life, to their own running. And that could be from someone like Sarah Hall, or it could be from the woman that you run with every weekend. And I think, again, back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show, that level of relatability is really what's most important. And you're right. Not every athlete has that because that world is 
so different mm-hmm. from what most people experience, and that's the only place that they've lived in some cases since like high school. Yeah, they don't know any different. So I've had some tough interviews where it's just you're getting short answers, and you're like, "Where am I gonna go with this?" You know. Um, but yeah, and I was gonna say something else about that. I forget. Well, you've had a, a very diverse list of guests over the last couple of years that you've had the podcast. How important is it to you now that it's established and you've had a number of recognizable names on there to keep that balance of the people you see in the headlines all the time mm-hmm. versus those who no one would recognize or even, you know, think that they, you know, they should listen to. Yeah, it's important to me. I just, this past Friday, released an episode with my good friend, Denise, who I actually came to Austin with three years ago. So that's just funny because we're sitting here in Austin right now. Um, And she's 49. She started, no, she's 54. She started running at the age of 49. Since then, has run three marathons. She's overcome breast cancer. And she is the epitome of an everyday runner, someone who's just getting out there, putting the miles in, meeting goals, not running super fast. Um, and it's cool because she started running at the age of 49. The people who listen to my show on a regular basis, they want to hear those stories. Is that story going to bring me a bunch of new listeners because she has 80,000 Instagram followers? No, but it's important for me to keep the integrity of my show to what the vision was from the start. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of times listeners will send you feedback, especially if you solicit it from them. Uh And I've noticed when I've had a guest on who doesn't have a huge following or isn't instantly recognizable, but has a great story and has a great presence on the mic. It can really just connect with me and connect with Mm -hmm. my listeners that I end up getting more feedback about those episodes than I do sometimes the person who's winning all the races. Oh, for sure. And those are the episodes that oftentimes are the most meaningful. And that surprised me a little bit in a good way. I'll get like really heartfelt messages about episodes like that. And I'm like, man, I don't care about how many downloads this episode gets because I'm, this is speaking to people, Mm -hmm. not me, the person I'm interviewing, you know? Well, we could geek out on podcasting for another couple hours, I'm sure, but I don't want to bore the crap out of all of my listeners. But one more geeky podcasting question for you. What does your process look like when you're bringing a guest on to the show? How do you prepare for the conversation? Well, that's an interesting topic because I had mentioned earlier about having a couple negative reviews saying like that I wasn't prepared enough or whatever. Um, now I always make sure to have a list of everybody's PRs for every distance right in front of me if possible. But um, I just, I try to watch videos of people talking to kind of get their personality, just research any last races they've recently done, try to see their history. I don't like to get into the nitty gritty of like where you were in high school, what, you, what your PRs were in college and stuff like that, because I, that kind of bores me a little bit. Um, and sometimes I get into it a little bit, but um, I like to hear the now story and, and maybe the bigger pieces of the before story to what got you here today. Um, but a lot of times I'll, I'll put together like 15 questions that I know I'm going to try to get to. And I have, then I have on the other side of my paper, like a bunch of, of um, facts, like she did this race, she did that. And then I try to come up with any kind of random facts, but I really try to just listen to the conversation like you're doing with me right now and let it, let it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that listening piece is 
key. And oftentimes, that's where you get your best questions from, by just letting someone talk. Yeah. And you never know where it's going to go when they just, you just let them go. Uh, and that's, I don't know, that's been, that's been kind of fun for me. you got to have those over-prepared questions, though, because for those interviews where people say three, three-word answers and you're like, okay, where are we going with well, that now? You have to, you have to dig. Yeah. Um, let's get into your relationship with running. Yeah. What was your introduction to the sport? So I started running when I was 15. My best friend, Sarah, who I'm having dinner with tonight, okay. uh, she encouraged me to join the cross-country team. And so I did that. I was hesitant to. And I, I, I stayed on the team. I did track all through my school. I wasn't very good. I mean, our team did go to state two of the three years I ran for them, but we were we never placed high or anything. And I was always back of the pack at state, you know. Um, but that was a big accomplishment, you know, for our team. So anyway, I ran in high school and I remember being so glad to hang it up because I was just, I didn't like races. I get so grossly nervous for them. I remember that last state meet my senior year. I didn't run well because I was too nervous and too in my head about it. And just like looking at that ground thinking, I never want to do this again. How about training? Now? That, then. Did you enjoy that part of it? Yes. Doing the practice? Doing the oh, workouts? I loved it. I, I loved, that was the thing that sold me was the team. I loved the team. Those cross-country girls on my high school cross-country team, the relationships we had were so different than with my friends that weren't on the team. You know, you know, it's a special relationship. I mean, a lot of my best friends still today yeah. are people that I met within my first five years of being involved in the sport. And it started with my best friend who is also here in Austin yeah. um, as part of, well, he's here as part of the running event. I don't know if your friend is, but I mean, we met in high school. We were yeah. rivals in high school and then we ran together in college. And then, you know, we lived three miles away from each other up until a few years ago. And, you know, that relationship is 22 years old. Now, yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. It's like this really strong connection you got. And I think that's really important as a teenager too. Because you don't see that as much, even though it's kind of an individual sport, you're, you're scoring with your team, but you're individually working, you know, yourself, kind of like swimming. Um, I just, it, those are really formative years in your life, and those relationships you have with the girls or the guys on your team are so important. Uh, but after high school, I didn't, I did not run in college. I wasn't fast enough anyway. I mean, I probably could have walked onto a team and been like, you know, the B squad. When you were in high school, did you follow the sport no. of running at all? No. You didn't, did you know who anyone was? No, which is funny because in marketing for my podcast now, I'm like, you know, when I do episodes with like Shelby Houlihan or Colleen Quigley, I'm like, I need to be marketing this to like the high school girls because right. that's who's following them. I wasn't following that stuff in high school, but look, let's be real. We are old and social media wasn't around when we were in high school, so it was harder to follow. It's a different world. Different. I don't know how high schoolers behave now because yeah. their day-to-day -day looks very different than mine. And the things that they have yeah. access to didn't even exist in... Think about how you could have geeked out in high school. Oh, it would have been... You know, <laughs> I don't know that it would have been a good thing necessarily right. because... So I was in high school in the late 1990s and we had the internet and I would go into the computer lab and when I first got into the sport and I became interested in it, I would, I don't know if it was 
Google or what the search engine was back then, but I would find whatever I could get my hands on. I'd read the stories and I'd read about Steve Prefontaine. I'd look at everyone's training and I was already doing that. And I had very limited access because I had to be in the computer lab at school. So I might've had like half an hour of free time computers. massive computer that <laughs> like, man, I wouldn't even think about trying to move it anywhere, but you know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, I didn't have a laptop or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I had this like maybe half an hour of free time a day where I could kind of geek out on the stuff. I think if I had instant access to it, maybe it would have been a good thing. Maybe I would have been inspired maybe or maybe I would have gone down some other rabbit hole and not even been, you know, into running. But yeah, I mean, the high school kids today, they have instant access to everything and they are exposed to the sport in ways that, you know, we weren't 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I would have had no idea about, you know, the Bowerman Track Club girls and I would have not known about any of that in high school. Yeah. Not to mention not having a laptop in high school. By the way, I didn't even have one in college. Did you? No, I did not have. Okay, it wasn't until it wasn't a big until, box computer. It wasn't until well after college that I was able to get a laptop. But even the athletes themselves, like yeah. the athletes themselves, didn't have the platforms that they do now. Right. I mean, social media makes it really easy because they can put a post up every day, and you're constantly in front of someone getting your message across, which, which is a positive thing in a lot of ways and inspires people. But, you know, that didn't exist back then. I think, you know, on that level, it's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing for the sport. But I think about that too, in, in terms of my guests, like I'm old. And if you look at my, my guest list, or at least the recognizable people on my guest list, they're the people that I grew up following, like yeah. the Nathan Ritzenheins, the Shalane Flanagan's, uh-huh. the Des Linden's of the world. And I'm thinking about that now. I'm like, well, I got to, you know, if I want to keep doing this for a long time, you gotta get relevant. I, I, gotta, I, I kind of do. I kind of have you to go are back. So relevant. I have to go back in time a little bit yeah. and, and bring on some of these younger athletes who yeah. the high school kids are looking up to now, who they're going to follow for the next ten years because Des is probably going to retire soon. Yeah. Shalane's probably going to retire soon. Um, David's probably going to retire soon, and it's like you know, not that no one's going to want to hear from them at that point, but they're you know. No offense to you guys if you're listening. A little less relevant. They're getting old. You guys are getting old. We're getting old right along with them. Who's the youngest person you've had on your show? That's a good question. Uh, probably Scott Fall. First episode, ironically enough. He's young. He's uh, like he's, 27. Yeah, and he's he's out there crowd. I got I got to interview more people like Scott Fall because they are the future of the sport. They are the people. He, you know, he's the guy that the high school kids are yeah. looking up to, and if they want to. You know, if they want to be a pro athlete, they want to be like Scott Fowler more so than they want to yeah. be like a Medica Fleski mm-hmm. type thing. Um, that's that's actually a good question. I've never thought of That's that. super funny that he's your first episode and we were just talking about how everybody's older. Yeah. So we were talking about your kind of introduction to the sport and we mm-hmm. got through high school and you said you didn't run in college for, well, certainly not for the team. Yeah. Did you take a break at that point? I always ran. Like, I don't actually until... So... We can get into this, but like my last pregnancy, I stopped running at 31 weeks. And until then, that's the longest I've ever gone without running. So I, I always ran. I mean, even in college when I, you know, was like eating pizza and drinking beer every night and doing that whole thing, I still probably ran at least three days a week just because it was part of my life. And I would probably run three to five miles on a regular basis, hop on the elliptical, but I was not doing any races. I think I did my first race, um, maybe like. Oh, my junior year of college, I did the mini marathon in Indy. Okay. And I didn't train for it. I didn't run more than six miles, I think. I squeaked right under two hours, I remember, and I had lots of chafage on my legs. 
That's pretty impressive, all things considered. It is. I mean, I, w- it w- I was pretty proud of that because I didn't know what I was going to be able to do, and I just kind of, like, trotted my way through that. Well, since then, you've gotten quite a bit faster. You've run 311 for the marathon. You've qualified for Boston. You're going to go back to Boston mm-hmm. next year, which I, I want to talk about. When did that... I'm going to call it a competitive spark. You can yeah. tell me if it's not that, but when did that competitive spark reignite for you after college? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think running that you know breaking it's it's like anybody who starts running. You you have your time, your first time. So my first time for the half marathon was one fifty nine, like fifty or something ridiculous like that, like so close to breaking two hours. And so then you go back the next year, and it was kind of like, oh, you're just going to do this race every year. Um, and every year I try to get a little bit faster, but I wouldn't really train. I would just kind of, you know, run a little bit more. Um, and I think it was probably my husband had a lot to do with it because we kind of would start getting competitive with each other. I actually specifically remember one year we ran the mini, we started together and have you ever run that race? I've never run that race, okay. but I'd like to get there. Yeah. It's a really fun race that you run out along the speedway, the 500 track that the cool. cars drive on. Yeah. Um, anyway, we lost each other on the track at some point. It was like mile six or something like that. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to do my thing. He does his. And we saw each other in the finishing shoot and I was in front of him. And I think I beat him by 10 seconds. And you he remember didn't... passing him? No, we kind of just like lost each other in the sea of people. Cause it. it's like a huge, massive race. So we just lost each other. But re- realistically, we were probably running within like 10 seconds of each other for like the last six miles. We just didn't know it. We just get, didn't see each other because it was so big. Um, but I remember thinking after that, after I beat him, I was like, you know, kind of getting in the competitive spirit. So then we trained for our first marathon and we trained with just like Timex watches. We didn't, you know, know anything about paces or anything like that. Um, but I ended up running the mini that year in 137. And then I went to, and we were running our first marathon like four weeks later. And I remember going to the Marathon Expo and I was being a big dork talking to the guys with the pace bands and stuff. And I, I told them I ran my 137 like any good running dork would do. And they said, you, you probably you could probably qualify for Boston, you know, if you ran a 137 four weeks ago. And so then I got it in my head. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to try to do this. And originally when we had uh, planned to run our first marathon, we thought we'll try to break four hours, right? That's what, that's a good goal. So anyway, I got in my head the night before that I tried to qualify, and I did. And the times were much slower then. You know, they they bumped them to 335 for women under 35. Now they bumped them to 330, but when I qualified in 2008, it was 340. Mm-hmm. And you could even run a 340-59. I ran a 339-52. So once I did that, it was kind of like, all right, if I could qualify for Boston my first marathon, you know, what more can I do? So that was kind of probably when it started. So your husband's a runner. When did you guys meet? So we we met in college. We worked together at the Village Deli. We went to Indiana University. And funny story about him is he was about 60 pounds heavier than he is now when we met. Living the good life on Taco Bell and Mountain Dew in college. As you should. Yeah. As one should. So he wasn't a runner at all when we met. No prior background in it. No. I mean, he did athletics. Like, he played basketball growing up and liked baseball. And he was an active kid. But, no, he was not. So, did your running rub off on him? Yeah. Yeah. He started running. He he knew that I ran when we met. And he was a little bit overweight. His family would, like, kill me for saying that. But um, he knows it. 
And he started wanting to get in shape because he wanted to feel better. And we did a 5K and then we did the mini together. I had done it the year before without him. So he did it the next year with me after we'd met. And, um, you know, I think when, when I beat him in the, so I beat him in that first marathon. I, I left him at mile 17. We ran 17 miles together and he was like massively slowing down. I remember at one time he like dropped a granola bar because that's what, new marathoners do they eat granola bars when they run marathons and I like ran backwards to get his granola bar from him and I thought man I could probably still qualify for this Boston thing because I didn't know much about Boston I said I'm gonna have to leave you and there was this little out and back around mile 2022 and I saw him we passed each other you know and um so then once I qualified and decided I have to go to this race he was like, well, you can't run another marathon without me running another marathon. So then he signed up for another one, and we just kind of kept going. And since then, he's gotten so much faster than me. What role does running play in your relationship? Or, to reframe that question, how has the role that running plays in your relationship evolved since you guys first met? I mean, it's a big part of our lives. We ran that first marathon the summer we got married. So, I mean, really all throughout our marriage, it's been a big part of our, our relationship. I, we've shared it together before we had kids. We would always go on runs together. Even when he was getting faster than me, we started, we would go on runs together. And, you know, he actually, he broke three hours for the first time in the marathon when I was five months pregnant with our first. So it was like right when I started having babies that he really, his um, speed started taking off and he started realizing how fast he could really go. Um, he had realized that his iron was low. And so he's, you know, he started getting faster. Um, but so it's always been like a very focal center part of our relationship. And even now we get babysitters to go on runs together because that's like the one time that we can have quiet, uninterrupted time to talk. So you've mentioned your babies multiple times now. You have four kids, four boys, four boys. You just had your fourth three months ago. Yeah. He's three months. How how has that affected your running over the last six years, having spent a majority of it pregnant? Yeah, I mean, I, I interviewing all these people on my show gets me really excited to run fast. I'm 35, and I think about this because in six years, I've had four babies. And also in those six years, I had a prophylactic double mastectomy, reconstructive surgery, and a tear in my plantar fascia. So in those six years, um, I ran two marathon PRs. I ran one after my first baby when he was like nine months old. And then that was in 2013. And it was three years later, 14, 15, 16, four years later that I ran another PR. So it, it was like a long time coming. Like I had been in shape multiple times to do it, but then I would either get pregnant or tear my plantar fascia. And so I didn't have that opportunity. Um, so thinking about, you know, like last year, our third child was one and I ran a 311 and that was kind of like, if I can, I think now if I can do that with three really little kids on one training cycle, because I had been pregnant over and over again, what can I do when I'm done having babies? So running stayed a focal part in our lives during my pregnancies and babies, but I'm excited for it to be a little bit more serious now. I mean, like the fact that I can train for a marathon, I'm going to run Boston this spring 
And I'm probably not going to run it super fast, but it's just like a good build, right? And then next fall, I can try to PR off that 311. Just to get a longer, uninterrupted stretch of training in could do wonders for you. Yeah. I mean, that being said, you've had some great success um, while you've had four kids and haven't been able to train for much longer than what, a year maybe without? Yeah, never, never more than that. So, and you've bounced back. I mean, you know, you had your fourth kid three months ago. You're running Boston in the spring. I know you're back to training. I got to start really training. (laughs) What advice would you give for moms who are coming back from pregnancy, whether it's their third pregnancy or whether it's their first? My advice is to take each scenario as it is. You know, my experience coming back from each baby has been very different. It's It's taken me longer every time. I bounced back really fast after my first baby. I think that has a lot to do with age, has a lot to do with uh, my desires at the time. Like I was really excited to get back to running fast and running hard after my first baby. I was very motivated to do that. Less tired. I was tired because I had a new baby, but now that I look back and I have four, I'm like, I didn't know what time it was, you know? Um, But, and the big thing too, and I, I know this is kind of like, people talk about this all the time, but just like, don't compare yourself to someone else on social media because you don't know what that person's really feeling. And, you know, if someone else was able to train throughout their pregnancy really hard and feel good, they're probably going to come back a little bit faster. You don't, you, you maybe didn't have that same experience. And, you know, with this baby, this last baby, I wasn't able to run through the end of my pregnancy. I maybe could have like struggled through it, but I got to 31 weeks and I was miserable. I didn't like running. It wasn't fun. And that's when I was like, I'm hanging this up. I'm done. I run because it's enjoyable and I'm not enjoying it. So naturally my comeback is going to take longer because I had those nine weeks plus the six weeks postpartum. So it's like, you just have to look at your own unique situation and say, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm going to do. And I don't care what he's doing or she's doing or, you know. How do you develop that patience? (laughs) Just keep having babies. (laughs) Um, It's hard sometimes. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think, you know, you asked what a focal, how running is a part of our marriage and my relationship with my husband. And it can be frustrating sometimes because um, I try to take myself not super serious with running. You know, I let things happen, but I also want to work hard. But when I see him, like, your body doesn't change. Nothing changes for you when we have babies. You just gonna keep on going on your life. And the physical and emotional hormonal changes that I go through every single baby, I don't know that I, I say I get envious of him watching him be able to just keep on running. Um, but it, it's hard. It's hard to be patient. And daggone, I'm done having babies. <laughs> so running is a lifestyle for you and your husband. And now you got four kids that you're raising around that lifestyle. You mentioned how you'll get a sitter so you guys can go out and get your runs in. How, you know, how do you raise your kids in that type of environment where both parents are passionate runners, you're both training, you know, for races, you have goals, you know, that you're chasing. You're also juggling, raising, you know, four kids, which is challenging on its own. Like, I make it all work. Yeah. I I think with the kid thing, we always like to say to our kids, 
It, the world does not revolve around you. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we get our run in because I'm a happier mom when I've done something that makes me feel better. And I think it's important for our kids to see us having goals of, of our own. I think it's important for our kids to see my husband proud of me for running a marathon PR. And it's fun for them and important for them to go to a race and see me cheering for him, you know, and the same with work. I mean, even, even with like leaving them with a sitter at daycare or things like that, it's like, this is important for you to see me working hard for a goal because guess what? In like 15 years, you're not going to live with me anymore. And I'm still going to have this, this drive and this motivation, these goals, and you're going to be doing all this on your own. So, um, and as far as balance goes and how do you make it all work? I mean, some people call BS and say balance is like not attainable. And I think there are moments in life where it feels like it's not, but I think if you can really, uh, hone yourself in on the things that are important to you at different parts of your life, it can be, you know, like right now, this weekend, what's important to me is my podcast. But on Friday night, my family's going to pick me up at the airport and we're going to go home and I'm not going to think about my podcast or any of that. So you just kind of have to like separate it. The balance sways. Yeah. Depending on where you are and where you need to focus your energy because work is something you need to focus your energy on. Your kids are something you need to focus your energy on. You're running. If you want to have a good race at Boston or not at PR, probably should focus your energy on it at yeah. certain points, but you can't focus your energy on all the things all the time. All the time. I think that's the big takeaway, which is applicable to even those of us who don't have four kids. Yeah. Who don't have else. I don't want to live a life where I, I say I'm too busy all the time or I can't have balance because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, I can choose you know, I could have chose not to come to Austin if I felt like it was overwhelming for me and my buckets were too full, but I felt like I had enough balance in the other areas that it was okay. I love that. Let's get back to your story for a little bit. You've mentioned your double mastectomy. What was the decision behind having that done? So my grandmother had breast cancer in her late 40s. And then um, we found out later when she had got ovarian cancer that she was positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, which then as um, like that gave my mom a 50% chance of inheriting the gene, which then if she's positive, gives me a 50% chance. So my mom was positive and um, I really put off that decision to find out if I had the, the mutation for like three or four years after finding out my mom had it. Cause I was really scared. You, you just didn't want to know. I didn't want to know. I wanted to know what I didn't. I wanted to know if I was negative. I didn't want to know if I was positive, but then at the same time, I did want to know because if I was positive, I wanted to do something about it. I was just scared. And, um, it kind of going back to the, the Saucony find your strong story. Um, I, I truly was a marathon runner through and through. I just ran my marathon PR in the spring of 2013 at Shamrock and I was burnout. I had my first baby. I trained really hard. I ran three marathons in eight months and I was just like, whoa. Yeah. I, I was, I, like I said, I bounced back from that first baby really fast. Um, but I was burnt out from the marathon. So I, three marathons in eight months will do that to you. Maybe you're not. Right. I did. I did one in November, December and March. And, um, each one, I got a little bit faster. The first two, I did not run a PR, but then I had those three months and I was able to run pretty fast at Shamrock. Uh, but anyway, I was burned out by that and I was, didn't want to run all the time. So I decided I would train for a half Ironman. 
And my husband had done a full Ironman the year before. So I kind of had watched him train and knew what went into it. And so I really truly think in stepping outside of running and doing things that were outside of my comfort zone, I had never swam before. I was on the Bloomington Swim Club when I was like seven and was in the slowest lane for three days and quit because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get the breathing thing down. My wife is a swimmer. She swam collegiately. She makes it look really easy. It's not. And it's not. I remember the first time we were at a pool and I asked her to watch me swim. I got across and I was like, how do I do? And she's like, well, she's like, you got to put your face in the water. I'm like, what do you mean? How do you know where you're going? She's like, you got to put your face down and you come up to breathe. You put your face down. It's, it's not. It's not easy. It's I, not easy. Yeah, I, I have tremendous respect for you for giving it a shot because I have zero interest in learning how to swim so I can do a half hour. I know. Well, that's the only reason I did it. So I would literally get in the pool and I, I would be like, okay, two laps. And then the next day I would do like five laps. And, you know, I mean, it, I really worked myself up and I'm still not a good swimmer. I mean, my whole thing with that half iron was like, get through the swim, you know, and you can bike and the bike's hard too, but in the swimming and in the biking, I mean, even the biking, I was stepping outside of my comfort zone. I wasn't a biker. Um, I remember I would just like be out on these bike rides and I would be in the pool swimming where I was very in my own head. Cause you don't have music, you don't have podcasts, you don't have a friend to talk to. And I knew that it was weighing on me enough. And I think that in doing those things that were outside of my comfort zone, I had the courage to say, okay, I can face this. And I called the doctor to schedule the blood test, like in the locker room. Cause I was like, get out of the pool. You're thinking about it. You feel brave. Call now because you're going to get home and get caught up in other things. You're not going to feel brave in three hours. So I think, I really think that that was pivotal in making that decision. And so once I found out I was positive, funny story they actually lost my blood test and like they didn't lose it they sent it to the wrong lab so like it took an extra like two weeks to get the results so you know you're like waiting 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 it's nerve-wracking enough as it is yeah and I very very much remember the day the doctor called I was making granola and my my one and only son at the time was sleeping and it was her name on the screen so I was like well she wouldn't be calling me if it was negative you know like or and then it was her voice. And so I was like, if it's the actual doctor, she's telling me I'm positive. And so I just remember like hanging up with her and holding my, my son when he got up and kind of crying and then just thinking like, well, I mean, I, I just have to like do what I have to do. And it wasn't a cancer diagnosis. It could, you know, but it was still scary to me. I've always had um, a struggle with fear in my life. And so I think it was scarier for me than, for instance, my sisters who were negative. They were like, oh, if I'm positive, I'll just, you know, have the surgery, get a reconstructive, you know, that's a free boob job for me. <laughs> you know, like that's kind of the way they thought of it. But to me, it was scary. Yeah. I'm, it sounds scary. I mean, not yeah. that anything a male ever has to well, do. I mean, well, they do actually have yeah. to deal with, but it's not a, you know, not a, not a common thing. Yeah. Um, in, you know, in your case, once you had the procedure, did that I mean, any procedure is scary enough to go into. Did that eliminate fears for you once you had it done? It did. Um, or were you scared about other things? I'm still scared about other things. I, it's a constant battle. And postpartum, I struggle with it a lot. And it's, you know, I mean, even even coming out here by myself, traveling alone, like that was scary to me. Um, I have to focus a lot on like deep breathing and meditation and listening to calming music and really like talking myself out of frankly, like panic attacks. Like I really do. 
Um, and I always say my husband is the most calm, cool, and collected guy, and he just doesn't doesn't freak out about stuff. And I always say to him, I'm like, why can't I be more like that? It's not my nature, though. But you probably balance each other out. We do, for sure. I mean, he probably wishes I was a little less crazy. Um, but yeah, that fear thing is always there. I almost feel like getting that um, news that I had the mutation and having to face that fear, it was really pivotal and really good because I, I needed something to face. And it gave me the opportunity to say, I'm going to do this. And going into that surgery was scary. It's like a six-hour procedure because they take all your tissue out and then they put these expanders in. So you have the breast oncologist and the plastic surgeon in there getting things in and sewing you back up. And it was nerve-wracking. That was the focal point of your women's running cover submission. And your story got out because of it. How much do you talk about it now and not prompted and how important is it to you to educate other women about this gene mutation and some of the risks that are involved? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't talk about it a ton. I don't think I brought it up on my podcast in general until about episode like 60 or so. And I did that for a reason because I didn't want people listen. I didn't want the new people listening to like think of that as like my whole story because it's certainly not. Um, that being said, it's kind of been out now a little bit more and I will talk about it in interviews and when people ask me, but I don't, I don't let it define me. I don't want it to define me. Um, and I also think about women and men who actually go through breast cancer and serious diagnosis. And I'm like, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I have that knowledge. It's like knowledge is power. And, you know, another piece of that the gene mutation is it increases your chances of ovarian cancer as well. So that's something I also have to get screened on and eventually I'll have to get a hysterectomy. So it's like, it's still something that I face and I think about pretty regularly, but I don't talk about it in my everyday life or, you know, bring it up. Like for instance, the other day um, I was feeding my baby a bottle because I feed my baby bottles because I don't, I can't breastfeed. And um, some, some girl said, Oh, did you have a rest feed? And in moments like that, I kind of have to say, I don't have to, but I usually choose to, to tell my story a little bit mm-hmm. briefly. Um, sometimes I just smile and say, this is just what I've decided to do because I don't want to tell the story. Yeah, but it's, it's a big part of your story. Yeah. But as you said, it's not just your Yeah, story. and I don't think about it all the time, you know? Sometimes I just, it's not even in my head. We'll wrap up here in a few minutes. Yeah. Let's bring it back to podcasting because as we've gone through this competition, yeah. I've got a few more things that yeah. I want to talk to you about. Where does the I'll Have Another podcast go from here now that it is your job? It is my job, yeah. And, I, you know, I recently bought this, like, massive wall calendar because I'm like, okay, I really need to be strategic about the year, about who I'm bringing on the show, sponsors throughout the year, what events I'm choosing to do. Um, a big goal for me in 2018 was to do some live events and to pick up some speaking engagements. I want that to be like an arm of my business. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the New York Roadrunners and do a live podcast with Paul Radcliffe. It was amazing. Marathon weekend, yeah. What an opportunity. And you know what, though? You know how that happened? I had Christine Burke, who is the vice president over there, on my show. And I just told her on the show during the interview, I said, I would love to do a show with you guys. I just 
put my goal out there. And she immediately made it happen. And I'm not saying that will always work out that way. Um, but I also think kind of putting yourself out there is how things happen. You can't be embarrassed to ask for things if you think you're qualified to do it. But I think that's an important takeaway, whether it's podcasting yeah. or it's right. I mean, I, that makes me think of Des Linden. She put it out there yeah. years ago yeah. that she wanted to win the Boston Marathon. Yeah. And she had come close and then... You know, she went out there and stars aligned and she made it happen. Yeah. Uh, and not that that's what everyone has to do, and it's certainly not everyone's style, but it's okay to put yourself out there and, and have your goals and kind of make yourself publicly accountable in a way because that'll keep you honest and that'll keep you motivated. And I think the second part of that is just the power of relationships. Yeah. Uh, totally. And, you know, relationships just matter in life and you never know what opportunities they may create. So, you know, kudos to you for creating your own opportunities in a lot of ways. Yeah. And also not being scared of failure. Like if it doesn't work out, like nobody really cares about all the little details of your life. So if you put it out there and it doesn't happen, you don't really need to be embarrassed. I mean, sometimes you got to swallow your pride and say, you, you might be a little bit, but nobody's watching you through a magnifying glass. Like you're watching yourself. Yeah. You have your own podcast. It's a podcast you've always wanted to listen to. I'll assume that you're still a fan of podcasts totally. in general. What podcasts are you listening to right now? Um, I do listen to The Morning Shakeout regularly. Thank you. Appreciate I always that. feel awkward asking that question on my show because I'm afraid my guest feels obligated to say they listen. Do you ever feel like that? No. No. You just don't care. Because no. I'm like, oh, I hope they don't think I'm like trying to get at them that I listen. But I do listen to your show. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and not I, yours. I listen to like a lot of um, also like nerdy learning shows. Like I listen to Online Marketing Made Easy by Amy Porterfield. I love the podcast with Knox and Jamie. It's just a funny like pop culture show. The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy. I always listen to that. Um, I have more on my list that I can't think of right at this moment. Um, another running podcast that has recently come up is The Rambling Runner. Have you heard of him? I have heard of The Rambling Runner. He's just a great guy. His name's Matt Chittum. And he interviews everyday runners. Like, he doesn't even touch elite runners. Because you know, I actually have to get runners. back to him. He asked me about being oh. on his show. So now I, yeah. I know who you're Well, you're not really just an everyday runner. But I'm an everyday runner. I am. I, I shouldn't never, say just because that's what I am too. But that, that's like his main niche. That's cool. Yeah, he's great. You should go on his show. He's funny. He's passionate about it, and um, it's fun to hear the stories of the people that he interviews. Those are the people that you're probably following on Instagram or Twitter, or watching their their races and their progression and stuff. So he's he's a good one for sure. Well, on that note, this isn't specific to a podcast, but I hosted a live one here in yeah. Austin last night and it was more of a panel discussion than it was an interview podcast. I had on Scott Gravatt who works for Nike. Um, I had on Jeremy Bresman who works for CLA Athletics and Pam Hess who owns the Loop Running Supply. And one thing that Scott said that surprised me a little bit is the runner he likes following now is a guy named David Kilgore. Okay. David Kilgore is fast. He's not troll-level fast. It's not how he makes his living, but he's a good athlete, has a strong online presence, and is inspiring in the message that he gets across. I don't know who that is. I, I did. Did you look him up? I, I did, because I didn't know who it was either. I mean, I'd seen the name before. Yeah. I didn't know who he was or, or what he's about. 
And I was like, I can see that. Yeah. Like, I can totally see that. And I think that's, that's part of the shift that's kind of happening mm-hmm. now in running in certainly other areas where that level of relatability can be inspiring in a way that it couldn't be back when we were in high school. Right, because we didn't um, have access. Yeah, we didn't have access to it. And I think that's I think that's super cool. And I, and I think it's awesome that those stories are getting told on Matt's podcast, on your podcast, to a degree on my podcast yeah. and, and others, along with the more recognizable folks who have great stories themselves. You got an everyday runner on right now? Yeah. <laughs> the state of running media is something that I'm really interested in. And like it or not, we are in, we're in running media. Yeah, totally. I've worked in the running media in other capacities before for bigger publications and now I'm doing my own thing you're doing your own thing how do you think about that space at this point in time it's kind of like a small big world isn't it there's not a lot of us in it but at the same time there's so many runners you know I was actually just at the um we I went on a family vacation and we were uh Fort Lauderdale for the uh Thanksgiving and there was a drumstick dash turkey trot. I was just looking around at all these runners and I was like, there's probably 4,000. I'm like, I bet maybe two people here, maybe two people know about my show, you know? And so it's, it's weird to have this like space where there's so many runners, but really this community is pretty small. It is. I mean, there's not a ton of running podcasts. There's not a ton of publications. Um, and I think that that, to your point of the relationship things, that's really important. Like, it's so good that you and I, even though we have shows that are very similar in their nature, as far as who we interview, it's good to cultivate a good relationship with your, I mean, competitor is not even the right word, but colleague, colleague. I I call the people that are in this industry colleagues, because I do think we should be helping each other out more then we should be breaking each other down. I think that's one of the coolest things about what I'll call the indie running media. Yeah. Um, not just you because you live in India. <laughs> I know, but about this that. indie running media of you know you have a, you have a huge show, but in the grand scheme of podcasts, it's small. It is. And like I have a devoted following, but in the grand scheme of things, it's small. And there are bigger publications out there which do some great things, um, but try to be everything to everyone you, yeah whereas if you can be something really special to someone or a lot you know a fair number of, of someone's um there's space for that and and i think running is a lot of people run but a lot of people run for different reasons they're interested in different things and i think it's super cool that you know there can be a number of of people and even you know some degree smaller or media organizations that can cater to a very specific slice of that population yeah i love it i'm having so much fun with it i know i was just thinking about this event i guess i'm media right that's what i'm here i'm considered media you are considered media in today's world which is a pretty cool thing yeah i think that's a great place to wrap up our podcast and we both have separate dinner engagements to get to but this was so fun this was super fun thanks for stopping by yeah thanks for having me all right I think that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it, or even if you didn't, hit me up on Twitter. That's at Mario Fraioli, M-A-R-I-O-F-R-A-I-O-L-I, and give it to me. The good, the bad, the ugly, I can take it all. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to audio and leave a rating and a review. It only takes a few minutes, but helps other listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Thank you so much to everyone who's done so already. 
Another thank you to Morton for sponsoring this episode. Morton is the sports fuel used by many of the world's top marathoners, including Elliot Kipchoge, Mo Farah, Mary Katani, and Des Linden, just to name a few. It's also what I use to break my own personal best at CIM a few weeks ago, and I could not recommend it highly enough. Give it a try. Morton has set up a special contest for Morning Shakeout listeners where you can win heaps of free product. All you have to do is go to morton.com, that's M-A-U-R-T-E-N.com slash AM Shakeout, and register with your email address. At the end of Morton's sponsorship of this podcast, they're going to draw 10 winners at random, and each winner will get a full box of 160 drink mix, a full box of 320 drink mix, and a full box of Gel 100 packets. That is over $130 of free product, folks. Enter for your chance to win it at Morton.com. Morton.com slash AM Shakeout. Once again, that's M A U R T N.com slash AM Shakeout. One last big thank you goes out to John Summerford, as always, from BearsRecords.com. He's the man behind the audio magic here at the Morning Shakeout. And quite frankly, this show doesn't happen without him. So thank you, John. That's all I've got. Until next time, I am Mario Fraley, and this has been the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm-hmm.